So a mom walks up to her kid who's sitting at the table, just coloring, has markers, crayons, stickers, and he's just going ferociously on a big piece of paper, coloring, marking it up, stickers, just intense look on his face. And the mom was like, son, what are you drawing? With so many colors and markers and stickers and so much intensity, what are you drawing? Little boy never looks up, just keeps going. He said, I'm drawing God. Mom says, son, no one knows what God looks like. Never misses a beat, keeps going, coloring, stickers, markers. Without missing a beat, just blurts out to his mom. They will. (laughs) So we've been in this series called Omnipotence, which has been a series about who God is. It's very important to say that because of who God is, we can never fully understand God. God is infinite. God is eternal. We are finite. We are limited. So in one sense, God is incomprehensible. It's a long word. Incomprehensible. We are unable to fully comprehend To fully understand God. At some level, he is just incomprehensible, unknowable at some level above us. He is an incomprehensible God. All the men are like, that sounds exactly like my wife. At some level, just incomprehensible, right? I always say, God, guys are pretty simple. Like yesterday, it's like, here, take this hammer, knock this wall down. Okay, I can do that, right? A lot less complex. God is an incomprehensible God. Now, this one sense that God is incomprehensible does not mean that God is unable to be known or understood, but that He cannot be fully known or understood. We cannot fully grasp God. It's almost as if you step on an ant bed and there's a mountain of ants that come out. If we were to somehow able to drill down and pick up one of those ants, which is kind of risky for me because I'm allergic to ant bites, but if I were stings, there's always the debate whenever I use an illustration about ants. Do they sting or do they bite? Uh, Whatever they do, they sting from the in-house pest control person. So these ant stings, if I could avoid one and able to have a conversation with the ant, um, the ant would not be able to fully understand what it means to be a human. All he knows is this large whatever came and stepped on my ant bed and now we've got a lot of work to do to make the queen happy. For the ant to try to understand what it means to be a human is just beyond, right, anything we can imagine. Now you can multiply that by infinity in the idea of a human trying to understand an infinite God. Here's what the scriptures say, Psalm 145.3 His greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 147, 5. His understanding is beyond measure. Can't measure it. Understand it. Psalm 139, 6. His knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It's beyond what I can attain. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, No one comprehends the things of God. Romans 11:33 Paul says God's judgments are unsearchable, his ways are inscrutable. 
these verses and multitudes of others in the text imply that we are unable to fully understand any one single aspect of God. These verses say His greatness, His understanding, His knowledge, His riches, His wisdom, His judgments, His ways are all beyond our ability to grasp completely. Now, the incomprehensibility of God does not mean that we're unable to know God at all or experience God. We experience His love, His power, His goodness, His grace, His patience, His compassion, His kindness, and on and on. But we cannot know or experience any of these individual traits completely. There's always more about God for us to know. And here's the good news regarding the incomprehensibility of God. We will never be able to know too much about God. We will never run out of things to know about God. We will never tire of experiencing more of His goodness, more of His grace. Even in eternity, when we are removed from the presence and power of sin, we will continue to grow in our understanding and delight of who God is. Paul says in Colossians 1.10, he encourages us to live a life that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit, and increasing in our knowledge of God. Increasing in our knowledge of God for all of eternity. Understanding more deeply and fully the goodness and graciousness of God without fully ever comprehending how big God is is. Sometimes I'm asked about my regular eight to five job outside of um, City Church. And uh, without getting into a lot of details, I work for a software development company that runs software for um, really large transportation companies in the U.S. And it's uh, kind of the central nervous system of large um, transportation companies. And there's lots of facets. Um, I don't know if you know anything about logistics or transportation, but it's more than just getting in a truck and taking something from point A to point B. There's a lot of other stuff that happens uh, that has to be organized. Transportation is one of the central um, lifelines of the American economy. And so the, our software is the leading provider of uh, what we do in the industry. And um, it's said a lot by even our smartest people at the company, which is a big company of whatever, 550 employees or more. Um, the smartest people that understand our software at the highest levels always say, I don't know everything about it. It's too robust. It's too big to know everything. That like we have to have specialists that know certain parts. And I always think in my mind for a product like that, Right, that humans created, humans make, humans develop, humans upgrade it, keep it moving forward. That there's not a single person, even the CEO, that knows everything about it. That's something created by humans. Think about how big God is. That God is a subject of study that we will never master. And that is good news for us, that our God is infinitely greater than we can comprehend. That His love, kindness, goodness, mercy, forgiveness, patience, presence, sovereignty, everything that makes God God, everything that makes God who He is, is infinitely greater than we can ever know or imagine. 
Now, we can know true things about God, right? Everything Scripture tells us about God is true. That God is love and holy and righteous and just and so forth. These are true things that shape who we are and how we live life. And we are invited again and again in Scripture to to know God and to live in relationship with God. And we understand this as humans. We understand. I have four children. I know and love them deeply. Um, I probably know them as well as anybody on the planet at this point in their life. But I don't know them fully and completely. I don't know everything about them from their inner thoughts, right? And their hearts and what they struggle with and their ups and downs. I know some, but I don't know them fully. I don't know my own self fully. And what we believe about God is the most critical thing about us. Let me quote A.W. Tozer here from his monumental work, The Knowledge of the Holy, on why seeking to understand God is so crucial in our very existence. Here's what Tozer writes. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me read that again. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He continues, Worship, our worship is pure or base, meaning corrupt. Our worship is pure or corrupt as the worshiper entertains either high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God Himself. The most significant fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what is in his, deep, in his deep heart, he conceives God to be like. We tend, and I love this phrase, we tend by a secret law of the soul, a secret law of the soul, to move toward our image of God. This is true not only of individual Christians, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always the most revealing things about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about God, what she leaves unsaid about God, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that's why it is vital for us to seek to understand who God is because what we believe about God drives everything about our here and now and about our eternity. That's one reason at City Church we seek to emphasize the bigness of God constantly. Because I want you to understand the magnitude of the God that you serve because it impacts your everyday life. We, we sang the song, the song we introduced today, that the battle belongs to God. Well, my view of God dictates what I really believe about that song. That everything I face in life is dictated by what, how big is the God that I serve. How faithful is He? How sovereign is He? As I deal with everyday issues of life, how big is this God? This series has provided us just a small glimpse of who we believe God is based on what God cannot do. That He cannot lie or He cannot sin so we know that He is holy. He cannot lie so we know God is true. God cannot change. We know He's immutable. God can't, we saw last week, God cannot stop loving because God is love. And I want to end this series with just this, a few moments on this final idea that goes hand in hand with the incomprehensibility of God. And that is this overarching truth that kind of dictates this entire series. God cannot stop being God. 
God can never stop being God. To help us understand who He is, God often identifies Himself in Scripture with names. Names help us grasp His nature. So you'll read in Scripture that God is a provider. He is a healer, a banner. A, he is peace. He is salvation. He's a shepherd. He is righteousness. He's a father. He is hope and on and on. These names tell us something about God. They help us identify who God is. And we, we get this, again, even at a human level. If I say a certain name, you identify a person by that name, right? Um, if I say Trump, you think of something. Good, bad, neutral, doesn't matter. You think of something, I guarantee you. If I say Nick Saban, you think of something. You think of a person. You identify that name with something. If I say Hitler, you think of something. You identify with a name. And so God often uses names to identify Himself in Scripture so that we can understand who He is. When we read that God is a provider, we understand that at some level because we have to provide. When we read that God is a father, if you're a parent, you identify with that at some level. Or if you had a parent, which I think is all of us, you identify with that. So when we read the names of God, we identify with who God is by that name. And so I want to end this entire series, but again, just highlighting one of the names of God who helps us understand, helps us understand God cannot stop being God. We discussed this name briefly in our Exodus series. So we're going to go back to Exodus 3. You're like, oh no, I thought we were done with Exodus. Now we're back um, just for a glimpse. Exodus 3, you remember the story. The context here is the burning bush. Moses has this encounter with God. He's on the backside of the desert. And God is sending Moses back to deliver his people from Egypt. And Moses basically says to God, when I show up, when I show up, who shall I say sent me, right? What's the name that I should use? They're going to ask, who sent you? And I have to be able to reply. Exodus 3.13, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. God says, my name is, I am who I am. <clears throat> I am has sent you. And this name of God, I am, the great I am, tells us some things about who God is. And what this name tells us about God is vital to our understanding of God. Let me just mention a few. God is, by this name I am, it tells us God is self existent, right? God is not, he is the great I am. He's not the great I was. He's not the great I will be. He is a self-existent God. That means God had no beginning. God had no origin. He is not answerable to anyone because there was no one before him. God exists in and of himself. He was not born. He was not created. God has no beginning. Again, we, we mentioned it in the earlier message, that, that question of like, where did God come from? And the answer is nowhere. He's just always been. He's just always existed. Now, again, this concept's a head-scratcher for us. We don't get that. 
That's part of the incomprehensible nature of God. The reason we don't get it is because we have a beginning. We were born. There was a time that we did not exist. And so we do not understand. Our minds are not able to comprehend a being who has no beginning. Everything we see, smell, touch, hear, everything has a cause, a beginning that explains it. We call it the cause and effect. And so it's difficult for us to think in any other category that there is this very first cause that caused everything but was not caused by anything. Defenders of the Christian faith, often called apologists, they use this idea of cause and effect to actually point to the existence of God. That everything comes from something, therefore there has to be a first something that caused everything, that stands behind everything. It's often called an uncaused cause, that no one caused the very first cause that set the whole chain into motion. We read it in Genesis 1.1, right? In the beginning... God. There he was. He just existed in the beginning. He was the first cause. The uncaused cause. The self-existent first cause. He's not accountable to anyone. He is not answerable to anyone. Now, we don't always like that. We want God to answer to us. Remember the whole story of Job? Like, why all this happening to me? The end of the book, God says to Job, I'm God, you're not. It's all you're getting. I don't answer to you. I'm God. Now at times God explains His purposes to us, but God is under no obligation to explain Himself to anyone. Here's the good news. Flashing light behind what I'm about to say. God's not accountable to anyone or answerable to anyone, but God is always good. God can always be trusted. So we don't have to wonder how it's going to turn out. God will always do the best thing. God will always do the right thing. God will always do the wise thing. God will always do the good thing. It is who He is. And He can't stop being God. He is self-existent. I am who I am, God said. Which also implies, not only is He self-existent, it implies He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. God does not have a needs list. God's not needy. God does not depend on me. God needs no one. God is completely independent. The kind of theology word for that is um, aseity. That God is self-independent. He's not needy. He does not get lonely. God did not create us because He was lonely or bored or needed a friend or needed someone to talk to. He did not create us because He was lacking anything or needing us to supply something to Him or to fill in the gaps where He was missing something. Theologian A.W. Pink says it this way. God was under no constraint, no obligation, no necessity to create. That he chose to do so was purely a sovereign act on his part, caused by nothing outside of himself, determined by nothing but his own mere good pleasure. James Boyce breaks it down this way. He kind of gives categories that God does not need. God does not need worshipers. To fill some void in his life. To make him feel good about himself. Let me go back to Tozer here. Were every person on earth to become an atheist, it could not affect God in any way. He is what he is in himself without regard to any other. To believe in him adds nothing to his perfections. To doubt him takes away nothing. 
We worship God in response to His grace and His goodness and His kindness and His love. Worship is a natural response to the self-sufficient God who does not need us to worship Him to feel good about Himself. He simply has a relationship with us from sheer grace. He created us from sheer grace and He did so to lavish His love upon us. How good is a God that simply creates us to bring glory to His name and to lavish His love upon us? You see, this idea that God is completely self-sufficient does not make God cold or lifeless or distant because this God who is completely self-sufficient, the way He interacts with this creation that He chose out of His own good pleasure and will to create, He builds a relationship of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness with them. Boyce says God does not need worshipers. He says God does not need helpers. God is not a heavenly grandfather that's depending on us to save or preserve the world. Now we're instructed from the opening pages to be good stewards of the world, but God's not depending on us to keep the world afloat. Relax. He's got it. He's in control. God is not hoping that we, you know, vote for the right candidate and vote the right candidate into office so that he can kind of manage to keep things around a little longer. As the kids' song says, he's got the whole world in his hands. Boyce also makes the point, not only God does not need worshipers, God does not need helpers, God does not even need defenders. Now, clearly, when we have opportunities to speak for God and about God, we ought to do so. It's part of the Great Commission. But God does not have to be defended to be who He is. The actions of God, the acts of God, do do not have to be justified. They do not have to be explained. You ever been in a situation where you're talking to someone about another human that has done something terrible or made some poor choices and the person that you're talking to them about is explaining the situation and they'll use a phrase like, I know he did this or I know this happened, but he or she is, they're a a good person at heart. You ever heard that phrase or used that phrase? Like we don't have to do that about God. We don't have to explain God. We don't have to defend God. We don't have to say, well, I know this happened, but God really is a good God. God, Our God does not need us to defend His credibility. Scripture, a matter of fact, reminds us that He's our defender. C.H. Spurgeon used to say, you don't have to defend a lion, you just let him out of his cage. He'll defend himself. God is the only truly self-sufficient God, which is why belief and faith in this one true God is so crucial to our understanding of who He is. Let me go back again to Tozer. Among all created things, among all created beings, not one created being, thing, dare trust in itself. God alone trusts in Himself. All other beings must trust in Him. Unbelief, Tozer writes, is perverted faith 
Unbelief puts trust not in the living God, but in dying men. Boy says, if we refuse to trust God, what we're actually saying is that either we or some other person or thing is more trustworthy than God. That is slander against the nature of God, the character of God. Nothing else is self-sufficient. On the other hand, if we begin by trusting God, by believing Him, we have a solid foundation for all of life. That's why what we believe about God is the most important thing in our life. God cannot stop being God. He is self-existent, self-sufficient. I am who I am, He says to Moses, to us. God is also eternal. Again, that phrase, that name, I am, it's a present tense name, right? I am. Not I will be. I was. I am. I am eternal. I am timeless. He is infinitely and perpetually God. Always God. Always will be God. God has always been God. He is God. He will always be God. That truth reminds us God can be trusted to remain who He is. To remain how He has revealed Himself. That He will never change. He will always be holy. Always be wise. Always be gracious. Always just. Always righteous. He will always be love. He will always judge sin. He will always be faithful. He will always be God. He is our eternal rock. Self-existent. Self-sufficient. Eternal God. I am who I am. God cannot stop being God. What a great source of comfort and confidence for us. We can depend on Him. He's not going anywhere. We can trust Him. We can believe in Him. God has revealed Himself and knowing who He is should drive us to seek Him, to worship Him as this one true God. Not because He needs us, but because we need Him. So, Moses brings the Israelites out. If you were here during our Exodus series, you remember all of this. They're standing before the mountain of God, right? They've come full circle, this place where God said to Moses, I am who I am, now go get them. Yada, yada, yada. We're back to the mountain. A lot happens in the yada, 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 if you know that reference. Exodus 20. God's brought them out of Egypt and He's about to lay on them what we know as the Ten Commands. Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Command number one of the Big Ten. You shall have no other gods, small g, gods before me. Number one on the list. First of the Big Ten. When I preached through this, I said number one dictates two through ten. Number one of the Big Ten, worship and obey God alone and reject the worship of any other small g God. Because He is the one true God and He cannot stop being God. The gospel element of this. Because this could make it seem like God is distant or removed. 
And then we read the redemptive narrative, the story of Scripture. And we come to the New Testament. And we come to this story that God had been writing for all of eternity. And we come to this gospel element that says, this God, this self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal, I am who I am, God, this God became one of us. He became one of us in the form of Jesus Christ so that we might know Him. That the invisible becomes visible. That the unknowable becomes knowable. That the self-existent is born. That the self-sufficient makes himself dependent. That the eternal enters into time and space. That God the Son became one of us to reveal who God is. Do you want to know who God is? Get to know Jesus. And what we discover in Jesus is not a God who is so incomprehensible and vast that He remains removed and unrelatable. Instead, we discover a God who comes down to us. That the incomprehensible enters into our space so that we might be brought up to Him. So that we might know Him and enter relationship with Him. I'll end by just quoting Paul. After one of the most complex, two of the three of the most complex chapters in all of Scripture, Romans 9 through 11, where Paul basically also says, He's God, you're not, get over it. He's sovereign, you're not, trust him. That's Romans 9 through 11 in a nutshell. If you've read it, you know there's a lot more there, but that's kind of it in a nutshell. And Paul, after going through all of this complex theological conversation about the bigness and sovereignty of God, again, I don't know how it all happened when Paul wrote it. In my mind, Paul takes a step back and looks at what he just read, and he scratches his head, and he says this, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And that word amen just means let it be. Let it be so. Let it be that way. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. He is God and He cannot stop being God. City Church, we fall in line with the psalmist and we just say, Be still and know He is God. Let's bow our heads for prayer.